Welcome to the Good News Ride Home for Thursday, July 2nd, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the full story behind America's national anthem. The other American holiday kicking off this weekend that you may not have heard of. The legendary exploding whale of Oregon gets its own memorial park. And NASA's 4K 10-year time-lapse of the sun. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. America's Independence Day is coming up this weekend, and anyone viewing fireworks displays synced with a local radio station will no doubt be hearing some rendition of our national anthem, The Star-Spangled Banner. Not that that's unique to the 4th of July. We play our anthem all the time before sporting events, military ceremonies, some political events. It's pretty ubiquitous, and most Americans know at least most of the words. If you live in the U.S., you might have even had to learn the basics of the song's origin story in elementary school. You know, Francis Scott Key was so inspired by seeing the American flag at the end of the Battle of Baltimore in 1814 that he wrote the lyrics on the back of a letter then and there. But there's a bit more to the story, and especially in our present time of reckoning with our nation's past, it's one that's worth acknowledging. So while some mistakenly believe that the anthem dates back to the founding of the United States, it wasn't written until the War of 1812, and wasn't recognized as the official anthem for nearly a century after that. As a quick refresher, the War of 1812 was mostly fought between the U.S. and Britain and started in part because of Britain's interference in America's trade, but the French also played a key role because America refused to pay back their debts to France, who had assisted them during the Revolution. Britain was also fighting with France at the time, so their reserves were low at the start of the war, but after they defeated Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo, they turned all their attention on America, and it was brutal. Maryland-based lawyer and slaveholder Francis Scott Key initially opposed the war, but when the British encroached on the Baltimore Harbor and he bore witness to the battle firsthand, he was so moved by the American victory that he wrote the now-famous paean to his country. Key had spent a rainy night watching the bombs bursting in air from a boat in the harbor, and in the morning he discerned the outcome of the battle by seeing the American flag flying, as opposed to the British one. He wrote the first few stanzas on the back of an envelope while still on the boat. After he was back on land and finished it up, he called it Defense of Fort Mahenry, and it was printed for distribution by his commander brother-in-law a few days later. On the printing, he instructed that the words should be sung along to the tune To Anacreon in Heaven, which was a British drinking song that was very popular in the U.S. at the time. The lyrics were then picked up by the Baltimore Patriot and by the fall had been printed in newspapers across the nation and renamed the Star-Spangled Banner. And his popularity never wavered, being sung at all manner of events as the years wore on. During the Civil War, both sides tried to claim it as their own, with the South saying that it belonged to them as it had been written in the South and shared their sentiments. In the North, physician and poet Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. even added a stanza to make it more befitting of the North. The new stanza included the line, The millions unchained who our birthright have gained. Holmes' version was reprinted in school books in multiple U.S. states in the early 1900s, so there were probably a lot of kids out there singing his version. But as World War I brought a new era of allyship with the British, some Americans disagreed with the Star-Spangled Banner's usage for military events due to its inherent anti-British sentiment. Some Columbia University professors protested its use, and others tried to find an alternative like America the Beautiful or the Battle Hymn of the Republic. 
But the Star Spangled Banner won out and was really cemented as the top choice for American public events when it was played at the 1918 World Series between the Boston Red Sox and the Chicago Cubs. Congressman John Charles Linthicum of Maryland was the one who introduced legislation to make it the national anthem in 1929, and after the backing of 5 million petition signatures, 150 organizational endorsements, and the support of 25 governors, it was eventually approved by President Hoover in 1931, making it officially America's national anthem. But going back to the Civil War... The South may have been right that the song was more reflective of their sentiments than the North's. Many have questioned the line in the third stanza, No refuge could save the hireling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. Quoting all that's interesting, It remains unclear today exactly what Key meant by those words. Some believe that since he was a slaveholder, he was simply delighting in the fact that his slaves couldn't escape. Others think that he was condemning the American slaves who escaped by fighting alongside the British. Yet others are convinced that Key was using the word slave as a rhetorical device to describe the Brits themselves, end quote. Even if that very last rhetorical interpretation is correct, it's ironic to the point of kind of offensive that he would use the word slave in a metaphorical way when he himself literally owned other human beings. Fortunately, most renditions and sing-alongs these days only include the first stanza, so many people can enjoy the tune in blissful ignorance of its darker past. Though I wouldn't be surprised if we see a fresh wave of opposition to the song's role as our national anthem. But if and when we do, remember that such opposition to this song in particular is not new, and that the song itself, and particularly its formality as an anthem, is newer than some may have you believe. Starting tomorrow, July 3rd, and running for a week through July 9th, is officially Be Nice to New Jersey Week. Yeah, that is a real thing. According to a 1997 New York Times article, the week-long holiday was originally started by the San Antonio, Texas-based Lone Star Publications of Humor. Yeah, it wasn't started as a joke by New York or like a weird kind of state pride campaign by New Jersey themselves. It was started by Texans, specifically by Lone Star Publications of Humor editor and publisher Lauren Barnett, who started the celebration in 1984 after noticing that New Jersey seemed to be the most picked on state, garnering more jokes at its expense than even Texas. As far as I can tell, Barnett has no connection to New Jersey. She just felt bad for it. Suggested celebrations, per the Times, quote, If you have friends or relatives in New Jersey, call or write them to tell them how sorry you are for picking on their state, she suggests. Those who don't know anyone in New Jersey, she adds, can still atone by addressing their apologies to the governor's office at the State House in Trenton, end quote. I can tell you from personal experience of having texted my New Jersey friends about this holiday that they do not receive it well. Maybe it's because I'm also from Texas, but I didn't see anything backhanded about it, just trying to have a nice day for an often bullied state. But New Jerseyans just see it as an insult. As the site You Don't Know Jersey said of the holiday, quote, Thanks guys, but we really don't need your gimmick. We are just fine. All the witty jabs and slurs don't really affect us. We don't take it personally. We can roll with the punches. You can keep your holiday. End quote. So, uh, yeah, maybe just skip this one.
So with America's Independence Day coming up this weekend, a day celebrated primarily by exploding fireworks, I thought I would talk about an explosion fail from 50 years ago. You might be familiar with the story of the exploding whale in Florence, Oregon. If you're not, here's a refresher. In November 1970, a 40-foot-long, 8-ton deceased sperm whale washed up on the shores of a beach in Florence, Oregon. Quoting the Oregonian, Local officials weren't sure what to do with it, and as the whale carcass began to stink, people started coming out to see it. Something clearly had to be done. The problem was, as KATU reporter Paul Lindman said in his now-famous broadcast of the event, It had been so long since a whale washed up in Lane County, nobody could remember how to get rid of one. You could bury the carcass, but waves would just unearth it eventually, and it was certainly too big to burn. With no better ideas, locals turned to the Oregon Department of Transportation, which decided to treat the sperm whale like a troublesome boulder and simply blow the thing up. Once disintegrated, their thinking went, seagulls and scavengers would take care of the pieces. End quote. Spectators crowded to watch from a safe distance as engineers packed the whale carcass with 20 cases of dynamite, or half a ton. When they set them off, the explosion was a bit more than people were anticipating. Quote, Chunks as big as three feet square descended from the sky, forcing everyone to evacuate the area. One piece landed on a car, caving in its roof. Miraculously, nobody was hurt. However, everyone on the scene was covered with small particles of dead whale, Lindman said. End quote. So yeah, not great. The incident got a lot of attention right after it happened, eventually becoming something of an urban legend in the area, but it resurfaced again on a national scale in 1990, when humor columnist Dave Barry shared the story in the Miami Herald and claimed to possess footage of the incident. His column wasn't completely clear on attribution details, so a lot of people thought the incident had just occurred rather than having happened 25 years prior. Eventually, though, the footage of the original KATU story by Paul Lindman got posted online, where it was shared across various sites over the years, and a study from 2006 estimates that the video was viewed over 350 million times, and that's before it was on YouTube, mostly before YouTube even existed. A lot of people report that it was the first video they ever viewed on the internet, and it even inspired a Sufjan Stevens song in 2015. So, with the story of the exploding whale having become such a long-lasting and completely true legend, I suppose it's not entirely surprising that in celebration of the incident's 50th anniversary this year, Florence, Oregon has just opened the Exploding Whale Memorial Park. The park itself opened last year under a temporary name, and recently residents were invited to vote for a new name of the park in an online poll. Other contenders in the poll were Bridgeview Park, and Suislaw Riverview Park. But anyone who remembers Bodie McBoatface should know not to trust the internet with naming things. Florence should consider itself lucky that the worst it got was Exploding Whale Memorial Park, which, by the way, was voted for by 439 out of 856 respondents. And to their credit, the city of Florence has actually gone along with it. The park sign features a nice painting of a happy whale spouting water in the shape of a heart, and they even had a whale mascot at the park's opening. Megan Mesmer, Florence's city project manager, told the New York Times that while the incident is a sore point for some residents who don't like getting flack for something that the state highway division was actually responsible for, most residents are excited about the park's name. Quoting the Times, 
Joe Bodro, the owner of an art supply store and the designer of the park sign, said the explosion is still a little bit of a touchy subject for residents, especially those who were involved in the blast. She hopes the park can serve as a reminder that we should celebrate our mistakes and not be embarrassed. The 1970 blast was a lesson learned for Oregon. There is now a policy to bury carcasses that can't be removed easily, Mesmer said. End quote. If you haven't seen the video before, I'll put a link in the show notes for you along with the Sufjan Stevens song. The video is really something. And just remember that the whale was already dead when it washed up on the shore. It might still be a little gruesome to watch if you are particularly sensitive to animals, but honestly, the 1970 80mm film quality makes it pretty tough to make out anything anyways. Yesterday, NASA released an hour-long time-lapse video of the sun as captured by their Solar Dynamics Observatory, or SDO, every day over the past 10 years. The SDO has been watching the sun nonstop for the last decade and gathered 425 million high-resolution images of the sun and 20 million gigabytes of data. Here's a bit more from NASA, quote, with a triad of instruments, SDO captures an image of the sun every 0.75 seconds. The Atmospheric Imaging Assembly, or AIA, instrument alone captures images every 12 seconds at 10 different wavelengths of light. This 10-year time-lapse showcases photos taken at a wavelength of 17.1 nanometers, which is an extreme ultraviolet wavelength that shows the sun's outermost atmospheric layer, the corona. Compiling one photo every hour, the movie condenses a decade of the sun into 61 minutes. The video shows the rise and fall in activity that occurs as part of the sun's 11-year solar cycle, and notable events like transiting planets and eruptions. The custom music, titled Solar Observer, was composed by musician Lars Leonard. End quote. NASA says that the images from the SDO has contributed to countless discoveries about the sun and its influences on our solar system. While this time-lapse was released to mark the 10-year milestone and 11-year solar cycle, it does not reflect an end to the project. The SDO and NASA's other missions will continue watching the sun over the years to come. And you can watch the video at the link in the show notes. It's really cool to scrub through and just kind of see how the sun ebbs and changes over time, especially if you play it in 4K. But if you want to watch the entire hour-long video... I mean, the music they set it to actually does make it just kind of this chill experience. So you could put it on in the background on your TV and go and do something else or just zone out to it. It's super fascinating, but also just very well produced. So as I have mentioned a few times today, this weekend is July 4th, a.k.a. Independence Day here in the United States. And like most U.S. companies, Ride Home is observing Independence Day tomorrow, Friday the 3rd. So that means no show tomorrow. But I will be back in your ears on Monday. So I hope everyone who celebrates has a very safe, socially distanced perhaps, Independence Day. And that everyone, regardless, has a good weekend. I will talk to you on Monday.